0: We want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of Minority Report podcast with Eric and Carell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in business, tech and media. And today's episode is sponsored by the American Marketing Association, New York, which serves marketing professionals in the world's most influential businesses, raising the profile of marketing, providing professional development and networking opportunities and serving as a resource of marketing industry events and news. It works to inspire, support, and celebrate brilliance in the field. Today, joining us is Karen McFarlane, who is the CMO at Lettershop and also the Chair of Diversity and Inclusion and Strategic Innovation at AMA New York. Welcome. How are you, Karen?
1: I am well. Thank you for having me, Karell and Eric.
0: We're thrilled you're hanging with us. Karen, can you tell us a little bit about what's happening at Lettershop?
1: Sure. So, Letter Shop is a boutique marketing creative agency. You know, we have this really talented, eclectic team that has like this breadth of creativity and expertise working with startups on the verge of something big to huge enterprises with behemoth reputations. And personally, tech is my sweet spot. It's been my background for a long time. But we get to work with a variety of companies in bringing their messaging and their story to life and every day is a new journey.
0: That's awesome. Karen, for those that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Like, where are you from? Where were you born? And where were you raised? Where'd you grow up? Well, I am New York, born
1: and raised. Technically, I was born in Yonkers, New York. The hospital I was born in is no longer in existence. I literally lived in the Bronx, and my parents moved to Shrub Oak, which if anyone knows New York, anything north of Mount Vernon is called Upstate. So I guess I was Upstate, which we weren't. It's kind of offensive. But we later moved a little bit north. I actually lived in Manhattan for a while during my college years. And I moved back to Yonkers. I didn't live there. I mean, I was born there, but I didn't know I moved to Yonkers. And then I came back to Upper Westchester, where I've been ever since. My parents are both from Jamaica. So I have that in my my cultural background and hmm. according to Ancestry DNA, I have bloodlines that are 48% Nigerian and 22% Benin and Togo. So I have to explore that a little bit more.
0: Oh wow, cool. Very cool. What are some interesting things that you learned in your household that sort of carry forward into what you're doing today in in life and even in work?
1: Well, what's great is that I guess maybe because both of my parents are from Jamaica, like it was a very the culture was very strong in the house, right? Just in terms mm-hmm. of you know some of the things you normally would think of, traditions and definitely food. Food is a huge part of that mm-hmm. and family and how we get together. But I think one of the things that really comes through that maybe even stereotypical of Jamaicans this is like this hardworking go-getter kind of mentality, right? And this entrepreneurial spirit. You know, my dad owned his own tech business, which he sold and he retired, you know, very early. My mom was a big wealth manager on Wall Street. And they really just came here with this attitude of, we're just going to make this best life. We're going to, you know, try and give our, I'm say child, because I'm an only child, you know, more than what we had when we grew up and really kind of instill those values. And you know, that hard work mentality, that entrepreneurial spirit. My dad's mother was an entrepreneur as well. It's kind of like been in the blood for a while. And so I started off early. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I'm fascinated. Like how did you start on your career path? I mean, how did you go and say, you know, okay, I'm gonna go to NYU and, and then start your career path? You've worked for some tremendous companies. Talk to us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, at first I thought I wanted to be in the movie business and I spent my grad school years in particular pursuing like my dream to be a a movie producer. Mm. But when I graduated, I realized I'd have to start at the bottom. And because of this little entrepreneurial spirit can do, you know, mindset, I kind of rejected having to prove myself over time. You know, I was young. I was, I was 20 when I graduated undergrad and I just went on to grad school, honestly, because I didn't have to work which was silly because I mostly interned during grad school and I interned at like New Line Cinema, HBO, Columbia, TriStar. And I had a fantastic experience as a music video assistant at Def Jam Records. So I felt like coming out of grad school, I could just take the reins. But, you know, others didn't agree. (laughs) They wanted to see a wider breadth of experience. So I applied for a job at HBO in their home video department and I got it and that's kind of where I started my career in marketing although I didn't know that I was really going to stay there Mm. you know but I was still doing all sorts of things on the side because I still wanted to be in the you know entertainment business so I was producing a music video television show that that rivaled video music box which I'm totally dating myself if you guys know video music box we managed like independent artists one of which made the billboard charts there's a go-go band from DC called Rare Essence and we also had our own right, independent record label. Yeah. Do you see a lot That's of work right. was done in D.C. And we started our own indie record label. And I think we may have been the first black females to do that. So I need to check that stat. But if we weren't the first, we were one of the first to have our own record label. And you know, we we're just kind of rocking and rolling in the industry. And well, I have a little corporate job, a regular corporate job at HBO. Where I got to work on some really cool projects too that kind of led me into the tech
2: industry.
0: Karen, sorry, Coral, I got to ask this. Go go is close to my heart. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh.
2: You go ahead and ask your question because Def Jam is close to my heart. So I want to. Oh, all right, that there question.
0: we <laughs> go. Uh, Karen, did you know that there's a Go Go channel on Facebook and you can see BYB, you can see Northeast Groovers, like all. Uh, anyways. Yeah, have some fun with that. Also you're you gonna
1: that. have you're gonna have to share that with me. Yes, for sure.
0: grill right. your turn. <laughs>
2: yeah. If I've got my calculations right, looking at your LinkedIn profile, you were at Def Jam during some pretty significant period of time when they were the hottest label around.
1: Oh, month of the man. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Around yes. then, yes. you know, when uh, yeah. I was on the set of Met and Mary's J. Blige with all they, lines There you go. You know, all that stuff. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Totally right. dating myself. Oh my god!
2: <laughs> I, I think we all are right now. Yeah, that's all, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all good, all good. It was but a I, blast. I, it
1: really was a blast.
2: I'm sure it was. I'm sure it was. And looking at your career, Karen, obviously you've got a really great track record in marketing. I'm curious to know, like, what is it about marketing that attracted you to really that profession to go down that path as a professional?
1: Well, you know, like I said, it was kind of by accident. I took this job at hBO Home video, and I was like, "Oh, this is kind of storytelling in a different way. You know, I kind of felt like I was still in the entertainment industry, and so the marketing part just kind of made sense it's It's kind of what I was doing, but I didn't really call it that in the past, So I think it just kind of crystallized what I really wanted to do if it wasn't going to be the big time movie producer, right? But what I really love about marketing, especially in the way that I approach it in terms of my consulting and the, and the agency and, you know, I have started consulting and then built the agency over time is, you know, I love working with different companies and I love the variety. Everyone has a story to tell and you just get a chance to on the gems and share with the world why that you think they should care, <laughs> right? You know, back in the day, it was a one-way conversation, right? Like, but now you get this real-time rich feedback and, on what resonates with your targets, and you can really get specific and granular about what you want to say. I think the conversations are definitely more complex now, which in some ways can remove some of the fun. But you don't get those moments of big disappointments or those huge waves of euphoria when you've done something right. You know, everything is in micro doses. But you know everything has its pros and cons. It's just a little different. It's called growth in the industry, and love learning it along the way.
2: Yeah, I hear that. And and I think, obviously, diversity, equity, and inclusion has been a hot topic for a lot of organizations, especially over the last couple of years, right? Especially here in the US with everything that's gone on. Uh, curious to get your perspective on the role that a chief marketing officer, creative, needs to play in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and really... Shining a light really for an organization in terms of not only the type of people that work in the organization, but targeting the people, a diverse set of people that use a lot of products that companies are promoting. So, curious to get your thoughts on sort of the role of the chief marketing officer as it relates to DEI.
1: Yeah. So, and not that I haven't thought about it for a while, but, you know, definitely as I've grown in my role and the influence that I've had, I found that I had more and more. Responsibility and power to affect that, but obviously, you know, more recently, organizations are catching up, you know, with what their role should be overall. Marketing, in and of itself, you know, has this tremendous power and influence in the way that their constituents, consumers, or buyers, whatever, how they think and act, and you know, whether it's for retail or or even political marketing, right? Like our job is to tap into those emotions to get people to act. So, that's a tremendous amount of power. So when you exclude people, you're not really serving your full purpose. getting kind of needs to look at its whole ecosystem, right? And it has this ability to touch so many different parts of an organization outside of its own department because it is the voice, essentially, of the brand and of the consumer or your buyer, right? Everyone tends to start with the talent pipeline and their internal hires. So who are your freelancers and suppliers? You know, what about your partners or like your board or your sponsors or your investors? How are you financing those investments in DEI? And how does that play into the marketing that you're practicing? You know, how does it show up in your R&D and your products? I mean, there's a whole list of things Mm. that marketing already touches that it can have a voice in and make sure that those elements of DEI are carried throughout the organization.
2: Gotcha. And as the chair of diversity, inclusion, and strategic initiatives, innovation, I should say, at the AMA New York. What role is the AMA playing in terms of pushing that agenda forward in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion within marketing and advertising?
1: Well, it's a very new role, actually. You know, in the wake of George Floyd's murder, many of us chapter leaders called on AMA to say, what are we going to do about this? And like many organizations, and they didn't really have a full-throated answer. So, quite a few of us got together as, you know, marketers and chapter leaders to say, "Hey, how are we going to help spur this effort?" And many chapters, I think it became like the biggest committee within the AMA organization in terms of a joint committee also got together to start thinking about those issues and helping other chapters come up with those strategies to help their constituents think about these issues and advance DEI. I actually recently joined the Professional Chapters Council, which is another layer, like a liaison between all of the chapters and the national organization. And I'm the co-chair of the DEI committee now. So you know, I've kind of just elevated that experience, but I'm also working on a local level with AMA New York. And part of the goal here is really, what are the things that Chapter leaders a and most need, need to help their marketers learn more about DEI. What are the challenges? What are the biases? What are the things that we need to be looking for? What are all these aspects I just talked about earlier? How can they plug in and what do they need to be thinking about? But one of the things through some of the focus groups and conversations that we had was you know, it really starts at the top. You have a lot of people in the middle right, that really want to do something or they don't know what to do, or they have fear of taking actions. They don't know how far the, those actions can go. And so it's really the responsibility of the CMO, right? Who reports into the CEO and what are the CMOs going to do? So we, one of the groups, we held a focus group with 25 CMOs and we asked them those questions. And, you know, some of the things that came out of there was super interesting. Some things that you, you know, would already kind of think about, you know, recruitment. Recruitment is huge, right? But finding people is still a challenge. And it really kind of brought out a lot of questions also and challenged some traditional ideas. How are you evaluating new recruits? What resources are you using? All these questions that we're already asking about in terms of developing the pipeline and what's really causing an exclusion pipeline. But then going further to assess how do we diversify the corporate ladder, for instance, right? So you get people in. And how do you get them promoted so that they can be in positions of power to help advance some of these issues? Because diversity is a huge topic, right? And how do you assess potential rather than achievement, which can have some bias ingrained in it? How committed are you? Again, going back to this funding question. How are you rewarding participation, particularly with ERG groups, that adds so much value to your organization? So we've actually taken all these insights from the CMOs and We put together a report that's going to come out on October 26th that really kind of crystallizes and and summarizes all of these ideas. It's anonymized because this was a a closed focus group, but we just didn't want to keep all these rich insights to ourselves. Mm -hmm. But we thought that this would help CMOs have more dialogue about it and showcase that they're not alone because a lot of them don't know what to do. They have some great ideas, Mm -hmm. right? But how do you really know if you're moving the needle? And that has also sparked a different initiative of mine, which is collaborating with some partners on how to answer some of these questions, right? So how do you, A, use accurate and properly recorded data to truly assess where you are in terms of your diversity and in terms of benchmarking that progress, because a lot of people just don't know what good looks like, right? And also creating the throughput from identifying great talent, whether it's a new recruit or within your pipeline, and keeping them and creating those programs and strategies that's going to really build them through the corporate ladder. So that's something that's new that I'm working on and with some great partners to answer these questions. And also the biggest question in Connector, which is how do you connect all of this to Wall Street, right? So ultimately, how do you demonstrate clearly that the EI has tons of economic value for your organization
0: all great points and darren i want to ask you you mentioned about leadership and then also data and real data and i can't think of anything that's more real data than personal experience can you recall and think back on times where maybe your own personal experiences becomes the real data that informs all the things that you just talked about can you share with us a little bit about, in, in your leadership role, how you work with others to tell your personal experiences and accounts for why all these things you just talked about are really important?
1: You know, it's much easier now than it had been in the past, yeah. right? I tell this story all the time. When I first, you know, when LinkedIn first you know, launched, I debated whether I was going to put my picture up, right? Because that would close me out of opportunities. And I wasn't making that up, but I had gone into situations where people did not know I was a Black woman. Well, they didn't know I was a Black, they knew I was a woman. And the look on their faces, how I was treated was palpable, right? And so I had debated that for a long time. And then I finally said, you know what? I just want them to know because I don't want to put myself in those situations anymore. Mm -hmm. Anyone who sees me is going to be welcoming.
0: I want to reflect on that for a second. I think I want our audience to understand that moment for you to have to sit there and think about that to say, yeah. can we put our picture up? Can we look like who we are for a moment? It's a real thought that crosses your mind and others. And I just want it to be in that moment for a second, you know, because it's big. And thank you for sharing that with us because,
1: and, it's huge. and you're right. I mean, it wasn't like, I sat there and I was looking at the computer. I was like, let me think for an hour, mm-hmm. right? This was months, okay, of should I or shouldn't I? And then deciding I don't care, right? Whatever I get closed out of I, is not meant for me. I'll only work with people who see me, right? And want to work with me. I don't have those experiences anymore. So it was kind of agonizing for a while, but I just had to make that decision. And I definitely think it did close me out of a lot of opportunities, but they weren't in my face. So that creates a different level of confidence, right? When you're only dealing with people who theoretically want to deal with you. But then even if you do get those opportunities, there's another hurdle to cross, which is demonstrating value or people recognizing your true value, right? I had a little bit of a leg up because when you come in, I started my career as a consultant, right? So you're hiring me for my expertise. Mm-hmm. So that gives me some level of credibility there just out the gate. But as you go on, people fall back into their same stereotypes, right? And so my idea is I'd have to prove them more. They'd be challenged more. And these are subtle things. When you're sitting next to somebody else who's not getting the same level of criticism or feedback, whatever word you want to choose, it is not the same. It can be disheartening. But in the end, it makes you stronger, right? Going back to, you know, one of the things that the color lines are very different in Jamaica, right? And so... Can
0: you talk to us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. So Jamaica is a melting pot. Right. You could have white, Chinese, black, Indian. It's all a mix. My family is all a mix. You know, I have an uncle that is white. And, you, you know, when you hear him talk, you'd be like, oh, wow, you know. And so it's more about colorism, right? You know, light skin versus dark skin rather than black versus white. So Everybody was pretty much equal. But if you were lighter skin, you tended to have more opportunities. And so, but when you come to America, it's a completely different story. And so you look at, a white person, you don't think that they have any more or less than you. And so there's a mindset there. And that's kind of what I was taught because that's what was natural for my parents. So I never really walked into the room thinking that I was ever less than, right? Of course, you learn these things, but I never thought about those things. And I've and my parents were very supportive and strong people. And so I've always kind of walked in with some level of confidence. I'm not saying I never, I never had imposter syndrome every now and then, because when you get beaten down, Quite a bit, you know, it does happen, but you have to build yourself up. Yeah. But all of those things make you stronger. And as I've gotten older, you know, I'm like, all right, if you don't want to listen to me, that's that's fine. Somebody else will.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know I know yeah. What I'm talking
1: about. Well, cool.
0: And I want to talk about something that you wrote, and people were listening and reading and understanding, and I thought it was pretty cool about all those things that you've learned about and were able to communicate through an article about inclusivity. And through Barbie and all these decades of like success, right? And, and you talk about representation matters of being represented, working through bias, and even different forms of diversity being rebranded. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and why inclusivity is good for business?
1: You know, some of the best teams that I have ever worked on have been just an eclectic bunch of people. And having those different perspectives and experiences just adds to the incredible work that can be produced if you just ask more people to sit at the table. I have always been a proponent of that. Like, I don't think that I know everything. I know what I know, and I know it very well. But I don't, first of all, I don't know everything about what I know. And I also acknowledge fully what I don't. And I love to have people around me that know something completely different than me or experience it different because it only helps me grow and it helps the teams grow and it creates this incredible energy that you can't get when you have a homogenous group of people deciding what's right or what's wrong or you know or what's going to sell or what's not going to sell. But representation is key, and I think one thing that I didn't really fully Grasp this in my earlier years, probably because I wasn't really thinking about it. I never thought race first. It was really kind of like, check off everything else and then mm-hmm. I guess if it's race then it's race. But that very first job at HBO, I was surrounded by Black excellence and did not understand that that wasn't normal, right? The president of HBO Home Video was a Black man. The second in charge of the VP was a white woman, a woman, and the director and manager, they were both Black female and male right and they were wonderful to me right they just allowed me to kind of grow and, and do what I wanted to do and and learn and they were great mentors but I didn't call them that I didn't call mm-hmm. them that I didn't know to call them that mm-hmm. I just was surrounded by support in that role and I didn't know how fantastic it was until I left because I never saw that again mm-hmm. I was always the only one wherever I went. You know, now I may have been followed by, you know, a couple of people here and there, but I always started off as the only one. A lot of the things that I have done is because I was the first to do them. And I couldn't say no, because then who would come behind me? I remember the first board. Well, it wasn't really the first, first board. It was the first first (laughs) white board that I was on. And it was for like my son's school. It was a private school. And a couple of people wanted to take me out to dinner. And when I got there, it was all of the Black families from the school that were there to just share in the excitement of me being there. And I was so overwhelmed. I was was not expecting that. And I realized it was a big deal when I said yes, but I didn't realize how much of a big deal it was until I walked into that restaurant with the surprise of all these people, you know? It's a heavy burden and a great burden. And I've accepted those burdens going forward because I, I realize how important they are. That representation is really key, even if it's just my own. When I became president of AMA New York, that was part of it too. It was me showing up and being president and having those black and brown voices be able to speak now and lift and come to me and, and be part of your organization. And, and that brought me great joy as well.
2: Mm. Love that. Thanks for sharing that story with us, Karen. Curious to know, as you think back across your career so far, what advice would Karen today give Def Jam, Jam, Karen?
1: Oh, Def Jam, Karen. Oh, you know, I was a really bad networker. I just didn't like it because I'm naturally an introvert which is really weird when you're like in the music industry. Like I I wouldn't, I I also was a little, I I also, again, was still a little bougie about certain things. Like I wouldn't, I didn't want autographs. I didn't want to do any of that stuff. I didn't want to be like those other groupie people. Like that wasn't my thing, which I still wouldn't change today. But what I would change is really just really talking more to people, getting to know them, asking them, you know, just about themselves and why they were there. You know, I felt like I was being a fan, but that's not naturally who I am, I'm not naturally a fan, right? I'm naturally interested in who you are. I would rather, much rather be doing this interview right now from your seat than the other way around, you know, <laughs> because I'm just fascinated by people's stories, right? And how they got there and how they came to be. So I think that I would tell myself, fight that introversion and just talk to more people and get to know them and get your name out there, you know, a lot sooner. Than I did later on in life. Yeah, I think that's my biggest advice to myself.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. You talked about mentors, but you didn't call them mentors, and we encounter that a lot, which is which is great. So shouts to all the mentors out there who are doing it and kind of like don't even realize it, right? Mm-hmm. Who were some of those folks for you, and then also how do you kind of work with others, the understanding that that sometimes mentors and mentees have a unrecognized sort of relationship?
1: Yeah, so I'm very intentional about my mentoring, even if it's informal, because I wasn't intentional about seeking out mentors when I was younger, right? Like no one talked to me about mentors or sponsors, right? Nobody talked to me about those things, but there were some really wonderful people in my life that I really respected that I could ask for advice. That are still in my life today. There's one person who I work with. She's actually my manager. And I actually did have a job at one point, (laughs) like a full-time job. And she'd be very honest with me about what I was doing really well, where I could improve. She was really interested in my success. And she's always been interested in my success. And I don't know if I've ever called her a mentor. I've mostly called her a friend. But If I really think back, like every step along the way, she was always pushing me, right? And Mm -hmm. asking me, so, hey, Karen, what are you going to do next? What do you think about this? Or, hey, let me introduce you to such and such and such, right? And that, again, for the introverted me, that was super helpful because it gave me, I don't know, some grounding in those introductions. It wasn't like this cold intro, but she was really kind of looking out for me in that way. And it's because that's who she, she is. And I kind of gravitate towards those types of people. Even in my friendships who are just like, we want each other to win. And that's kind of my mentality as well. Like, I am there to either informally just be an ear to someone. I'll take a call with anybody really to talk about their careers. To be someone who's brand new that I haven't met before or someone who's just really stalled. I do have a couple of formal mentees that I've had for years, like 10, 15 years. I really like to talk to people of color because they don't normally have those outlets or have people that they could feel like they can, I guess, keep it real with. But at the end of the day, I just really want to see people win because when they win, I win. Mm-hmm. And the winning is all of our rewards.
2: Love that. Love it a lot. All right. Fun question. I love asking every guest that we have on the podcast, which is give us the top three apps that you use On your phone, on a regular basis, but you can't name email, calendar, or text messaging. Those are too boring.
1: Okay. (laughs) So the app I go to without fail every day, because I have to, otherwise I don't get my point, is Design Home, which is a game where you literally design rooms. Wow. (laughs) Yes, it is so much fun. And it's the only app I actually spend money in, you know, in app store. I will buy more points and things like that. (laughs) It's kind of bad. And I have to go every single... It's like... you know, Anyway. So every day I go there. LinkedIn has become a favorite of mine just in terms of that networking and connection. And it is what it is. It's different than the other platforms. Although I really love TikTok. And then because I don't like to pay full price for anything, when I do all my online shopping, which is quite often, I will start Mm -hmm. off on Rakuten um, to get my... (laughs) discounts.
2: <laughs> I, I gotta ask, who are you following on TikTok?
1: You know, I don't know all their names, to be honest <laughs> with you. Okay, I really don't. <laughs> but generally, it's dancing, comedy, and people just acting silly, you know, that type of stuff. And I actually tried a little bit of it doing some TikTok, which no one should totally follow me at all. Um, <laughs> but I was just trying to have have a little fun and, All right, and come it's, it's, outside of myself. <laughs> it's your
0: entertainment app. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's it. There you go. There you go. <laughs> well, Karen, yeah. thanks so much for joining us. A lot of our audience likes to stay in touch or reach out. What are some ways that our listeners can reach out and stay in touch with you?
1: LinkedIn is the absolute best way. I go to the morning every day. And I like it. And I answer.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so go. much. Thank you, Karen. Thanks for joining us. And thanks again to our sponsor. American Marketing Association of New York, serving marketing professionals in the world's most influential businesses, raising the profile of marketing, and providing professional development and networking opportunities. AMA NYC works to inspire, support, and celebrate brilliance in the field. Thanks again, Karen. And for all of you listeners, thanks again for joining us for another episode. And you can find more episodes where you find all of your audio and video. Just search Minority Report Podcast and look the logo. Thanks.
1: Thank you.